Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. And I want to say a warm welcome to all of you, especially if you're visiting with us today. Do you realize that this is our first Easter together in three years? So two Christmas Eves apart, two Easter's apart, and only today can we gather. So Christ is risen. It is good to be together, to worship together. I invite you to turn in your Bibles if you've got one. It'll be on the screen also to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read the first 14 verses of that chapter, but first let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a source of life for us. I pray that as we celebrate your resurrection, Lord Jesus, that you would draw us deeper and deeper into your kind of abundant life. Amen. So 1 Corinthians, verses 1 to 14. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, also named Peter. And then to the twelve... After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Let me pause there. It's a little weird. Why would they have fallen asleep? Well, in the New Testament, when Christians wrote about people dying, they referred to them as having fallen asleep. You know why they do that? Because when people fall asleep, they eventually what? Wake up. And so the confidence of the early Christians was so strong in the resurrection that they were comfortable with describing people who had died as having merely fallen asleep. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of confidence? Well, we're going to talk about that this morning. Then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, writes Paul, as to one abnormally born. And by that, he simply means that his conversion was extraordinary. He continues, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, 
and so is your faith. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. It's Easter Sunday, as you know. And so no matter what you believe, no matter why you're here this morning, you probably have guessed that we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. The passage I just read to you is is one of the classic passages in the Bible that talks about the resurrection, and it teaches us four things. First of all, that the resurrection is the basis for the gospel. Secondly, that resurrection truth is received. It's not arrived at, we receive it. Third, that the resurrection is something that has happened in history. And finally, that the resurrection gives us the most powerful hope in the face of death, hope like no other. So in verse 3, Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. He's really talking about the basics. That's what first importance literally means. Paul says, I want to pass on to you what is most basic. But you know, whether I'm watching the Leafs or the Jays, it quickly becomes apparent that no matter how talented a team is, and if, if you're listening, William Nylander, this is especially for you. Thanks for 30 goals, that's great, but just keep back-checking, please, Willie. No matter how talented a team is, if they forget the basics, like playing defense, they will lose to far less talented teams that have not forgotten the basics. The Christians in the city of Corinth, to whom Paul wrote this letter, had gotten distracted by other things that were not the basics. So Paul comes back to what is basic here at the end of his letter. I want to suggest to all of you, whether you are a skeptic about Christianity, whether you're not sure what you really believe about it, or whether you've been a Christian for many years, you need the basics. If you're a Christian, ask yourself this, is the reason I'm troubled because I'm forgetting the gospel? I'm forgetting the basic thing that originally brought me in. Is the reason I'm angry? Is the reason I'm anxious today? Is it because I've forgotten the basics? The answer to that question is always yes. So let's start with the gospel. That's where Paul starts here. He refers to it in verse 1 and in verse 3. The gospel is truth you have to believe in order to experience the resurrection power that comes from God. So the word gospel, or in Greek, evangelion, means good news. And it refers specifically to a messenger who brought good news. So when the Greeks would go off and fight a great battle, they would leave everyone else at home other than the soldiers. And the people who were waiting at home were anxious about what was going to happen. Would they have to take up arms and defend themselves? Would they be defeated and enslaved? Well, the army would eventually send a messenger with news of the result of the battle. That was the Evangelion. That was the gospel. The good news that there had been a victory, a victory that has saved you from slavery. So when Paul took the basic Christian message and called it the gospel, he was saying something really important about it. He was saying, 
You don't need to try harder to live a good life. That's not the gospel. So let me ask you, if you go to a church and you hear a message with practical advice for how you can live out what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, some of his most famous teachings are in that sermon, is that the gospel? Is that the good news? In the Ten Commandments, it says, thou shalt not steal. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus builds on that and he says, you should live in such contentment that you're never even grumpy or envious. Is that the good news? Or take the golden rule, for example. Do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. Is that the good news? It's beautiful, it's noble, but is it good news? When you hear that, that you have to do exactly for another person what you would have them do for yourself, do you feel liberated? That something has been done for you? That your burdens have been relieved? The gospel, the good news, means that a battle has been fought for you and you are now free. It's proclamation that something has been done already on your behalf. Some of you have been in church for a long time and you might still be missing the basics. You might be standing on the wrong thing. If you think the essence of the Christian message is to be a good person and to live according to the golden rule or the Sermon on the Mount, I'm here to tell you that is not the good news. Let me put it this way. If right now you are not conscious of the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most wonderful, thrilling, amazing news you've ever heard in your life, if you don't feel that way about it, well then, you may never have heard it. You may not understand it. Imagine that Greek messenger comes from the battle and arrives in town. He tells people, you're about to be put in chains. And if that had been the case, if there had been a defeat, most of the men would have been killed. The women and children would have been made slaves. But that is not how it ended. There was a great triumph. The Persians were turned back. Now, anyone who receives that message and understands it is not going to be casual about it. Whatever the gospel is, when you hear it, you are absolutely thrilled. Your burdens are lifted. You have been transformed. The second thing we learn from this passage is that the resurrection, the truth about the resurrection is a body of truth that must be received, not arrived at. So far, what we've heard about the gospel sounds, sounds pretty good. It sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? It's a victory on my behalf. It's freedom. But now Paul says the gospel is a body of truth that I received and I'm passing on to you. We used to have people over for dinner or for lunch after church sometimes. Remember when we did that freely before the pandemic? And sometimes we do it as a true potluck. You know what that is? It means you don't have to drop a spreadsheet. You don't have to organize things. You just say, bring whatever. Sometimes that works out. <laughs> one time, I remember we got four desserts and one soup. The kids loved it. 
Well, maybe not the soup. Paul says the gospel is something that is given to you. You have to receive it. You don't get to control it. It comes to you. He's not saying, I, look, I did a lot of study. I'm a very insightful man. And I've arrived at this wonderful liberating principle that I'm going to lay out for you now. He doesn't say at all that we arrive at the truth. What he says is the truth arrived at me. It came to me and I passed it along. I didn't come up with it. I did not discover it. And so we have a body of truth, and only when you hold to it, only when you receive it and submit to it, only then are you free, are you saved. That's harder for us to accept than a great victory on our behalf. We think in order to be free, we need to be free from constraints. And often you hear freedom defined in negative terms. Freedom from danger, freedom from suffering, freedom from someone else's control. But that doesn't really tell me what freedom is. How would you explain the field of medicine like that, for example? Well, medicine is not plumbing, it's not farming, it's not jogging. You could go a long time and not get anywhere, really. The Bible insists that freedom is not just a negative thing, it's a positive thing. What the Bible says specifically about freedom, and here's the definition, is that it's being yourself. It's being yourself. The biblical idea of freedom is to be free to be who you essentially are. Our culture's idea of freedom is to be free to do whatever you want. So take God, for example. God is completely free. He experiences no shame, no anger, not in the sense that we do anyway, no bitterness. He experiences no insecurity. He is perfectly free. Why? Well, because he's totally consistent with himself. He knows who he is, and he's true to who he is. John Stott, the great Church of England leader and writer, put it like this. He says, think of a fish. If a fish were sinful, think of a sinful little fish for a second. If a fish were sinful, it would say, I am not free as long as I have to stay in this stupid water. The fish would decide in the name of authentic freedom that it was going to get out of the water and go for a walk around the house, maybe relax on the couch for a while. And that is not going to work out too well for the fish, is it? Why? Well, because the fish would be violating its nature, its fishness. But fish don't do that because they don't want to be anything other than what they were created to be. They're perfectly happy and free because they're totally consistent with themselves. Now, God is like that most of all, and he invites us to receive the good news and to find our way back into an acceptance that we are designed to know him, to love him, to serve him. And as we do that, we're coming back to our true nature, into the harmony God created us to enjoy. What we hear a lot of today is you can invent yourself. You can be anything you want to be. You should follow your feelings in that. Well, that's never going to work. 
think about it, your feelings don't even agree. They don't line up. Deep down in your soul, your feelings are playing chicken with each other in a way. They're having head-on collisions. You want to love someone, but you want to keep your independence. What I want contradicts itself. I want to be thin, but I want to eat Lady Glaze donuts. I want financial security, but I want to spend whenever I see something that I want to buy. So freedom is identifying the desires that will liberate you if you give in to them, and identifying the desires that will lead to bondage if you give in to them. And listening to the ones that are in accord with what God says is your nature. So the Christian message is that there's a body of truth. It's the gospel, it's good news, and it liberates you as you receive it and as you submit to it. So how does Paul go on to sum up that body of truth here in verses three and following? Well, not as a list of do's and don'ts, but, and this is the third point, but as something that has happened. He writes, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of his brothers at the same time. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. So first of all, Paul does not give us the teaching of Jesus or his practical principles for how to live rightly. Jesus definitely gave us teaching and, and principles to live by, but they're derivative. They're secondary. The main thing is not what Jesus taught, but what he did. Paul says simply, Jesus died and rose again. Paul says the resurrection of Christ happened in history. And if you want to know the evidence, he points to it. He says Jesus appeared with Peter. Then Jesus appeared to the 12 and then to 500 others. Now, scholars agree that this letter, 1 Corinthians, was written only 20 years after the first Easter, after the resurrection of Jesus took place. And so the evidence was fresh. If you wanted to investigate, you could. And Paul says these historical facts are what we preach everywhere. And he says this is what is going to open our minds to the hugeness of the resurrection. What he says is there is no hope unless God himself has punched a hole in the ceiling of the universe. And as C.S. Lewis puts it, our great captain, Jesus Christ, has opened a cleft in the pitiless walls of the universe and bids us come and see him. These historical events that took place in Palestine 2,000 years ago do that. Jesus has entered in. He was born, he died for our sins, and now he's risen from the dead. If all that is true, then you can be saved. You can be free, and there's hope for your future. Your sins can be forgiven, and you can have a relationship with God, the creator of the universe. And his spirit can come into your life and change you. Now, all of that depends on the truth of the resurrection. And so Paul says, let's look at the evidence. Paul 
went around Palestine, around the Mediterranean, around much of the Roman Empire, saying, there have been eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Go and talk to them if you want. That's why he says they're still living. Most of them are still living. And by making these claims just 20 years after the fact and saying this is what we preach everywhere, Paul shows that the early Christians were absolutely confident about the evidence. The tomb was empty. And we know that because the early church built itself on the message of the tomb being empty. And Paul says there were 500 witnesses running around who saw the risen Christ. Now, one person might have a hallucination, right? Maybe you ate some bad chicken. It happens. But people don't have hallucinations in groups, especially groups of 500. Paul says, go and talk to them. You'd be welcome to. Try to find a hole in their case. And so Christianity was spreading like wildfire. All the authorities were trying to refute the facts, and they couldn't do it. Chuck Colson was special counsel to U.S. President Richard Nixon during the Watergate scandal. He was in charge of covering it up. He was one of the most powerful, cynical, and hard-nosed men in Washington. And after he went to jail because of Watergate, the political world was shocked when he became a Christian there. And Chuck Colson writes, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Paul had an even more unlikely conversion than Chuck Colson, and he points to himself as one of the best witnesses to Christ. Paul had a front row seat for all the miraculous goodness of the early church, and yet he was sure that Jesus was an imposter. In fact, he went around killing Christians. What changed him? What caused Paul to give up the career you might dream of? He was a professor. He had the power of the Roman Empire behind him. He was convinced of the truth of his message, but something changed him, and it was the resurrection. Jesus appeared to Paul, and it says, scales fell from his eyes. He saw the world like he'd never seen it. Do you see the point? If you understand that the essence of the Christian message is, first of all, proclamation of good news, that something happened in history, then there's no way to explain how the church got started and took off other than the resurrection. There's no way to understand how the world was so changed by the Christian message if it was just a philosophy or principles for living morally. No, it was a proclamation that something had happened, something incredible. And that's the reason why Paul can actually taunt at death. Later in this chapter, he does that. 
He has that hope because Jesus is the Son of God and death could not hold him down. In Acts chapter 2, where the first sermon in history was preached by Peter, it says that Jesus rose from the dead because death couldn't hold him down. Imagine death trying to pin him down and boom! No, impossible. Death could not hold him. And this is where we get our hope. This is the fourth aspect of the meaning of the resurrection we're talking about this morning. Think about the power of death for a second. We don't like to think about it, but the reality is that nothing can stop death. No human can stop it. The power of decay, the second law of thermodynamics. Even mountains can't stop death. They get worn down to pebbles eventually. Even the sun and the stars can't stop death. They burn out. That is the awesome power of death. And yet someone came, one man who overcame death. Jesus Christ didn't just deny death. He didn't just defy death. He destroyed death. And I love that line in the story that Eleni read to the kids and to all of us, that death became untrue. And that's how Paul can say at the end of this chapter in verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? He sees death as a vanquished enemy. And only Christians have this unbelievable ability to handle trouble and worry and anxiety. How do we do that? Because we can look at the most powerful obstacle to happiness in the universe, death itself, and we can stare it in the face without fear. I have seen this as a pastor over the years. I see it in the deep hope of those who are facing death and trusting in Jesus. I see it in the hospital. I see it at hospice. And there are so many stories I could tell, but the one that came to mind was Linda Campbell. It's just last year that Linda died, that she passed away. And she had suffered so much, but many of you know this. She practically glowed with the confidence and the joy that came from her faith in Christ. And I've seen it at funerals, but differently. Funerals where there's only grief and uncertainty, confusion, despair at the loss, the forever loss of a loved one. The Christian funeral is an altogether different thing. The grief is still there, it's real, Jesus himself wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. But there's joy too. And that joy comes from knowing that death is not the end. We anticipate what is to come. And that anticipation, that hope arises from the foundation that is the resurrection. Christ is risen. And so Paul speaks directly to death and says, do your worst. God gives us this peace, this confidence that you can handle what you're facing. Christian friends, do you believe in the risen Christ? Can you face worries? Can you face troubles? Is he your savior? We can do that because as we sang earlier, ours is the cross, the grave, the sky. And so we go from looking down 
into the dust, the decay, the death, to looking up to the heavens. So if you believe that the risen Christ is Lord of history, you know that the bad things that happen to you are crosses that are going to rise. They're going to raise you. And you can say, against every understanding of our world, come on suffering, come on disappointment, come on every kind of trial in my life. I have a greater hope. And the lower you lay me, the higher Christ will raise me. What do I have to fear? Are you using this on yourself? Do you find that you're constantly worried about things? Are you desperately lonely in your life right now? Are you angry a lot of the time? Do you find that you blame other people for your trouble? Do you lack the joy of those early Christians? Well, it's not because they were made of sterner stuff or better stuff than you are. No, it's because they were using the doctrine of the resurrection and they were looking at everything in their lives through it. Are you doing that? Well, if you'd like to grasp that more fully, understand what that looks like, join us. Join us next Sunday. Join us as a people of God, a community at Courtright, as we wrestle with this whole letter, 1 Corinthians. What does it look like to be a people of the resurrection called together to live our lives together? The early Christians had incredible joy even when they suffered. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. If you're here today thinking that you'd like to have faith like that, but you can't see it because you've messed your life up somehow, and so you think this isn't for you, this doesn't apply to you, notice what Paul said. As he described the risen Christ, who was the first person Jesus went to see? He went to see Peter. Then he went to see James. The Bible tells us that Peter and James rejected Jesus. They hurt him badly. Even so, right after he was raised, Jesus goes to see the people who hurt him the most. He goes to see those who have wronged him. That's just the way he is. If you feel like he's not for you, that he wouldn't want you, let the truth of the resurrection dispel those doubts. I believe Jesus is walking with you today. He wants you to recognize that he's there, he's real, and that he loves you, and that his love is the most real thing in your life, if you will grasp it. He knows you, he made you, and the way you're going to find him is by losing yourself. You need to receive his presence real and true. He says to you and to all of us, I am the resurrection and the life. He went to the cross to give us an ultimate hope, hope that we can change, hope that death itself is defeated. And so we say, as we do every Easter, Christ is risen. Amen.